giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with us today is Robin Carnahan, Director of State and Local Practice at 18F. Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, Lindsay. It's great to be with you. So what exactly is 18F? 18F is a digital consultancy inside the federal government. Um, It's kind of like a Peace Corps for tech geeks uh, located inside the General Services Administration. And I'm speaking to you today also in my personal capacity as somebody who's dealt with technology problems in the government space for a lot of years. I used to be the Secretary of State of Missouri, and in that capacity had lots of technology that I had to roll out to the public. And invariably, it was costing too much and didn't get delivered on time. And I had to be the one to explain why that happened. So that sort of set me on the path of having a passion project to do better digital services for the public. Yeah. So I want to dig into your background a little bit. How did this path sort of evolve? Did you start out in government or the private sector? You know, what has your career looked like over the years? Yeah, so I'm a lawyer by training. So I spent a few years practicing law and ended up uh, doing various other things in business, but ran for Secretary of State in 2004 and was elected that year, came into office in 2005. And I'll never forget the first day I walked in. And by the way, let me just backtrack for a second. Secretaries of State in most states, a very administrative office. They do things like helping businesses get licenses and do their renewals annually. And Missouri, we oversaw elections, and so that's very administrative. Also, the registration of brokers and dealers and the overseeing securities uh, law enforcement. We had the state archives, which was really, really fun, and a few other things like publishing administrative rules. So a lot of these interactions where a citizen needs a thing from government, and so it's not a high policy thing. It's just a government service delivery thing. So I remember the first day I walked into the office and there were more people literally opening envelopes and preparing checks to be deposited for renewing their annual business licenses than we had in our tech department. And I thought, oh my, (laughs) this was 2005. So I spent my eight years really introducing technology into every facet of the office. And by the time we left, you know, almost all the business filings were being done online and it saved a ton of money for the public and as well as the taxpayers. Yeah, government, you know, even as a citizen, you know, strikes me as an area that is still very paper driven. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, I'm a good government geek at my core. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about how you can make people trust that democracy really works and it really can deliver. And in these days where folks can order a pair of shoes walking down the street and have it delivered to their house the next day, it seems pretty crazy that in governments you still have to stand in line to do things or have a really bad customer experience. And so that's what set me on this path, that we have these delightful digital services that we access in our everyday lives. I wanted to get to the bottom of why we couldn't do the same thing for government. And so what are sort of the success measures for a secretary of state? What makes a, a great secretary of state? Well, I get, you probably get a lot of different opinions on that. but for Sure, me, what's it, your uh, opinion? <laughs> yeah, so for me, it, in some ways, it's not that different than in the business world. You know, you want your customers to be happy. You want it to be a, a quick and easy experience. I, I know when 
when we integrated all of the business filings online, when I was moving around the state, people would say all the time, oh my gosh, thank you for this. It took me five minutes to set up a new LLC and we cut the cost by 50%. And so, yeah, you get feedback from the public all the time. And we were often going out and meeting with various uh, groups of users and stakeholders in the office. One of the really fun things we did, and I remember in the state archives, was the secretaries of state often get death certificates, right? Mm -hmm. Which doesn't seem like a particularly interesting thing, except if you're a genealogist, in which case you love these things, and you end up getting them 50 years after a person dies. Prior to that is usually with the health department. And so genealogists everywhere were super excited when all of these boxes of these 60,000 records would show up at our office. And so we had digitized a lot of things, but the digitization part is not the hard part. The categorization and figuring out how to do searches, that's the more challenging part mm-hmm. on something that you can't OCR or, or scan in to do. Like human eyes had to look at it. And so for a couple of years, we'd gotten everybody all hands on deck to try to do the different searches. And I think we had maybe six or seven categories, you know, names and counties and dates and various things that you could search by. And uh, it would take 47 days. That was that was our record for how quickly we could get these things online for our customers. And uh, so one year we decided we were going to crowdsource the search, right? And and how we how we divided up these these things. And so we got people from all over the world. We had hundreds of volunteers, literally some from Australia and New Zealand, who were helping the Missouri State Archives digitize these records. And we set up a very simple sort of double-blind indexing system where one volunteer would see the record and read all the old writing and write down the search criteria. The second volunteer would look at the same record. And if it matched, we knew that was good. If it didn't match, one of my staff had to look at it. So take a guess how long it took to digitize our 60,000 records with the crowdsourcing instead of just our office. Oh, my gosh. Uh... 47 days was our record. So it's shorter than 47 days? Shorter, yes. 30 days. Three. So we went from 47 days with my staff to three days using volunteers and had better data, right? Because two sets of eyes had looked at it. I record that as a success, right? And so being able to deliver better services for less money for taxpayers is really what we were all about. That's amazing. So you sound like, you know, jumping into the role, you're already very tech savvy and and comfortable with this area. Is that fair to say? Actually, I would say not. Uh, It's funny funny you say that. I am the non-technical person, frankly, at the team at 18F. We have lots of product managers and design folks and coders and developers and security people and data folks. But I understand how government works and I understand how you make change in government. And frankly, to me, most of the issues that are presented in government are not technology problems. They're really culture and change in service delivery problems. And that's the part I understand. And you mentioned even early on, you know, there was a tech team when you joined. What were they responsible for and how did that maybe evolve over your time there? Yeah. So in, in the Secretary of State's office, they a lot of the internal back office systems they were working on, but we, we spent a lot of time doing external publicly facing things. And whether it was new and user-friendly election night reporting websites that incorporated mapping and other kinds of imaging that really gave people a better story about the information that was being presented, or whether it was uh, how you sign up and register to vote. We did all of these things, but much more public facing. 
tried to put together a, I remember back then we called it a one-stop shop. It was a, you know, a portal where if you were going to start a business in the state, it was a place to do it. This was in 2005, 2006, mind you, where, you know, none of these tax code requirements and various things in state government were in one place. So if you were a business person, you had to like search all around to try to get a business going. And so we consolidated all that, even if it was in different agencies in one place for a user. So even I didn't know anything about user-centered design or any of these words about, you know, agile development that I can converse about today. I understood that in the end, it's really about the public and our job is to serve the public. And so we need to be listening to what they want and providing them easy to use services. I imagine that also, you know, it's reducing a lot of barriers and making starting a business more accessible to a, a wider audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, that's why that's why you do these jobs in government is to be able to serve your fellow citizens and neighbors. And there's no reason why it has to be inefficient and hard. It's just a yeah. matter of uh, getting the right folks on the team and being committed to, to doing that kind of work. I think the big barrier, frankly, is, is just lack of information. Mm-hmm. For example, no one ever uttered the words open source to me when I was in office. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know, because I'm a lawyer by training, I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know that I had a choice of not being locked into a single vendor to provide you know, some system that we needed. And so once I had the experience of being locked into a bad, I always referred to it as an unhealthy vendor relationship, um, that you, was too risky or, or financially expensive to get out of, I didn't know there was an option to that. Today, I know there's an option, and that's what I spend a lot of time talking to other elected officials and, and executives in government about, uh, is that there's a different path today than there was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And you can take control back over these technology projects and not just have them you know, be the thing that causes you to lose sleep like it was for me. Speaking of open source, you know, as you have these projects come along and have these successes... Is like technology or information either back then or today like being shared between states and offices instead of, you know, I imagine there might have been some duplication of efforts. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so having that exact experience was what sort of set me on this path that was would have been rather unpredictable for someone with my background. But so when I first got into office, I told you about like seeing all the people opening the envelopes. Right. Well, my predecessor who was from a different party, had been at a Secretary of State's conference. And, the, and I remember the Secretary of State uh, in North Carolina had hired a couple of folks in North Carolina coder developers to develop a, a, an online filing system to file your business registration. And so Elaine Marshall was her name, and, and she had offered for Missouri and other states to just use the system that they'd built in North Carolina, which is fantastic. You know, she paid mm-hmm. for it. They own the code. And so... Over time, what happened was Missouri and several other states hired the same team and they used that core that they had built and, and then you know modified it for each of the states, which turned out to be a great result, really made huge progress in a short period of time because Elaine had done that, having a shareable system, right, that we didn't have to invest in. You know, 80% of it was already built out and the last 20% got to be modified for our state. So after about seven or eight years, Uh, That company got bought out, the North Carolina company, and immediately the bigger company said that they weren't going to service the platform anymore. 
So all of a sudden, we were going to be back to square one or have to pay a lot of money. And of course, you know, naturally, we didn't have any documentation. So we didn't have the ability to take over the use of this ourselves or hire somebody else to maintain it. So we had to go through another procurement process and get another vendor and spend a lot more money and a lot more years developing a system when the one we had was really good, right? And so all of the other 14 or 15 states had to do the same thing. Uh, so that breaks your heart. It breaks your heart because like what started out as the right model, which was you could build 80% of what you need that could be applied to all the states and shared to now every state has to pay to reinvent the wheel uh, was crazy making for me. And so that's what really set me on this course to figure out how to change the marketplace around to make it uh, a better deal for taxpayers. So when did 18F start? When was it? Yeah, so that a lot of this happened kind of around the same time as you may remember the rollout of uh, the Affordable Care Act. Oh, uh, absolutely. Obamacare, where, as I say, the damn website didn't work, right? And it sort of shined a light on what a lot of people knew, which is these government technology projects have a lot of risk and a lot of times don't work. And, and by the way, that policy, all of a sudden, whatever the policy is, doesn't matter if the, if the website doesn't work. And so that was a big wake-up call to folks in government. And so there were two digital service teams that were stood up around that time. One was called U.S. Digital Services, and that was based over uh, at the White House at OMB. And another team was inside what's called the General Services Administration. And that's kind of the buyer of stuff for the government. It's a big agency and they buy, you know, everything from helicopters and, and aircraft carriers to desks and buildings, but also technology. And so there is a team of digital technologists inside the General Services Administration called 18F. The name just comes from the street address in Washington. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering what the code was. Yeah, yeah. Like 30 Rock. I think they had, they figured out they must oh, right, they, they right. do something cool. But it, it basically, it's a, it's a great team. It's sort of what I wished I'd had access to when I was in public office, right? It was a group of very smart technologists, up to date about things, cross-functional teams, not trying to sell me anything, right? So aligned with the mission of our government partners. So it's turned out to be a, a great experience. And to be able to have folks who are longtime experts in the rules about government procurement, for example, to be teamed up with technologists ends up being pretty potent because Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, if you're clearer on the government side about what you want to buy and what the outcomes are you want to get, chances are higher you're going to get that rather than the kind of the old style waterfall, spend three years gathering requirements and then, then have to spend a lot of time with change orders, because it turns out your guesses about the requirements were wrong. And so are they mostly helping sort of identify vendors and then managing those relationships? Or are they also doing like building things themselves? Great question. So we have a team of a couple hundred and most of the folks work on federal projects with federal partners, right? And so that can include doing all of the work. Uh, building out the websites or building out the back office systems or doing the cloud migrations or whatever. And the work that we do with state and local governments is a little different. There are so many of those uh, and we're all federal employees. So we're focused uh, instead on things that include federal money. So there's lots of grants, you know, tens of billions of dollars every year go from 
federal agencies to state and local agencies for technology, and also things that involve an acquisition. With our state and local work, it's a lot more kind of mentoring and training and teaching people to fish. Mm -hmm. And what is your specific role in charge of? So I have built up our state and local practice. It's mainly consists of health-related and uh, human services-related work. So that focuses on uh, child welfare programs, for example, which is a federal program administered by states. Medicaid, another federal program administered by states, and it's the largest line item in every single state budget. But there are lots of other projects around uh, transportation and smart cities. Much of that is funded by uh, the Department of Transportation, there are Department of Labor activities with unemployment systems. So there are lots of lots of different things. But I help identify uh, state and local partners, and also work with the federal teams. Right. So one good example is with uh, the Center for Medicaid Services. Uh, we've worked for many years uh, with their teams to talk about how modern software projects actually work and how they can incentivize uh, better results by asking the right questions uh, and asking for the right artifacts rather than just relying on the same old waterfall things. If you want to do an agile project, you ask for different things than if you want a waterfall project. So helping people understand those differences has been a large part of what we do. Yeah, it seems like there's a big education component to the whole organization. How do you approach that? Yeah, it's really kind of in the end almost all about education because the technology part, again, is pretty solved, right? So none of the technical component pieces are all that complex that haven't been solved for the private sector. But putting that all together for one of these uh, federal or state systems hasn't often been done. So we, we do a couple of things. We try to talk a lot about kind of the basic principles for modern software design you know, the things you're familiar with about user-centered design and agile development and modular procurement and the notion of DevSecOps as being a smart way to do this so that you don't have, you know, one of those blocking another. And then a lot about openness, right? And how if you if you have open access to either code or data standards or sometimes APIs, that it allows the marketplace to be a lot more competitive. And so Mm -hmm. just like introducing those principles as a thing that is within folks' control makes them feel a lot more empowered to ask the right questions about what the outcomes ought to be. I mean, there's a very longstanding culture of just kind of checking boxes if Mm -hmm. you're overseeing a project and Gantt charts and, you know, red, green lights on things that that are going well or not going well. And we just encourage people to simplify this down to, you know, being really clear about the outcomes you want but not sort of setting the barriers and boundaries about how to get there and that you'll end up mm-hmm. with better results that way because technology is changing all the time. And so to try to lock people into you know, a certain process or way to get to the outcome is going to end up having a worse result. On the team, is there anyone with education or content creation specific roles or is that part of everyone's job? Yeah, so we do have some content people, uh, but always looking for more. You know, one of the things that happens on our team is most folks are on a a four-year term. As I said, it's kind of like the Peace Corps for tech geeks. And so we're always recruiting for more folks. And uh, anybody who's listening who's interested in working on really big impact projects, you can't get a better spot to be than in the government. And uh, the good news is it's a fully distributed team around the country. So you also don't have to move to Washington. 
Well, th- yeah, this is a great audience to make that pitch to. So we'll make sure to share your okay. contact info a- at the end as well. Great. Why are there four-year cycles? I think that that was just set up early on to be able to make it easier to hire talent. Mm-hmm. It can be a pretty long process to get uh, hired in the federal government. I can't get into the details because I don't know, but there are lots of different hiring authorities. And so as a way to quickly get technology talent in, they used a particular one, but it included having a, a term limited time that you could be there. And as far as like the types of roles or the backgrounds that people are coming from, are there trends in the, the, the profiles of people joining the team or is it really from technologists from all walks of life? Yeah, there, we have openings for different folks all the time. I, I mean, you mentioned content. We, we're always looking for mm-hmm. content people. They hire lots of developers. I think there might be you know, openings for those right at the moment. Product people, uh, user design folks, I mean, just kind of runs the gamut. We've stood up a, a couple of separate services over the last few years. One is called cloud.gov and another called login.gov, both of which are really interesting because if you think about it, like every interaction with government starts with authentication of who the person is, right? So there's a login process and an authentication process of the person that happens over and over again. So the idea was if you could set one of those up that could be sort of easily plugged in, you're saving a bunch of time and money and reinvention of stuff. And likewise, cloud services, there's a big move across the board, obviously, to cloud for all kinds of reasons. But there are tons of constraints in government about doing that. I mean, it's not like you can just spin up your Amazon cloud account and ratchet it up or down really easily. You have to go through a very complex ATO process. So one of the things cloud.gov is it's sort of a layer on top of that that does all the compliance stuff for agencies so that they can easily spin it up. So cloud experts, identity experts, we need those folks too. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I imagine there's a whole layer of special security concerns considering these are all government systems that need special security considerations. Yep. So lots of security folks as well. Yeah. Anybody with any technical background and has an interest in working on projects that just impact millions of people's lives and don't see it as, you know, maybe a permanent career, but something they want to do their public service. It's a fantastic place to be able to do that. Yeah. Do the team find it rewarding to be able to contribute to their government in this way? I feel like, yes, very much so. I mean, you can make more money, obviously, out in the private sector doing things, but I don't know that you can make as much impact. And so I think there are lots of people that are very mission-driven, who want to be able to spend part of their career doing something that's that's given back and doing their public service. Turns out technologists are just as patriotic as other people. Some folks run for office, some folks sign up to serve in the military, and other folks can come do their public service by uh, helping out with government technology and making sure we can deliver in ways people should expect. I noticed that you're also involved with, I think it's called Launch Code. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that organization? Yeah, LaunchCode is fantastic. So I'm based in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, LaunchCode was started and conceived by a guy named Jim McKelvey, uh, who was Jack Dorsey's partner in starting Square. Both Jack and Jim are uh, St. Louis natives. And so when they started Square, the story that Jim tells is they would have loved to have had it and you know built the business in St. Louis, but they couldn't find enough technologists. They just couldn't find the tech talent. And so went out to San Francisco. And so part of what Jim wanted to do in his hometown 
was create a talent pipeline so that you didn't have folks that were just sort of moving around from company to company in town or the really talented leaving town. And so it's a non-traditional path into technology where you don't have necessarily a a degree in computer science, but have a, a lot of talent and capacity. And so it's an apprenticeship program that is combined with a free, which is really important, a free boot camp essentially, uh, that gets you prepared and then uh, gets you placed in companies, some in St. Louis, but some around the country. It varies a little bit, but often it's for like 90 days. At that point, the company either hires you or don't. And the conversion rate into, you know, from apprenticeships to full-time hires, has been really high, like, you know, between 80 and 90%. So turns out it's a model that works great. Companies love it because it brings net new talent into the pipeline and really changes people's lives. I mean, the stories are unbelievable. You know, used to be bagging groceries and now they've got a well-paying job at a good company doing coding. That's amazing. And you can just build your pipeline for 18F right there. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I'm not giving away anything to say that I know that, uh, like, for example, the National Geospatial Institute is doing a big expansion in St. Louis and they need tech talent with certain skills and so Launch Code is basically creating curriculum to train up a talent pool that can then be hired by this government agency. So it's, it's fantastic. It's really a, it's a great thing. And, and of course, it doesn't leave you with debt, which is a huge thing for folks nowadays. Oh, yeah, major. So are there any big initiatives on the horizon for 18F that you could talk about with us? Because we're like a tech consulting firm, uh, we respond to the needs of our government agency clients. And so I mentioned cloud.gov. That's a you know big mm-hmm. demand space that lots of agencies are trying to figure out how to move to the cloud. But many are also trying to figure out legacy modernization, you know, on these Medicaid projects, for example. Like, <laughs> I'm not joking when I say that a lot of them are still COBOL-based. And wow. so there need to be folks who understand strategies to keep critical infrastructure systems that are delivering healthcare services to people who need it or you know welfare services to kids who need protecting that those have to be maintained while you migrate into something a more modern stack and so yeah there's a big 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 demand for that so if people do want to follow along with 18F or yourself what's the best way to do that so 18F has got a blog and a Twitter account and all of that. So just look up 18F, which, by the way, it's the number 18F. That's like 18th Street and F Street in Washington. Uh, people often are like, ATF? Is that what you mean? It's like, no, no, no. F-18? No, no, that's an airplane. This is 18F. It's inside the General Services Administration. And follow me if you want. I'm on Twitter at Robin Carnahan. Well, Robin, thanks so much for coming and telling your story and teaching us more about 18F. It sounds like you're doing really important work, and thank you. Well, thank you for having me on, and I definitely encourage uh, folks who want to give back to to jump in and take a look. And, And if you're not inspired by the federal government, all the same needs are at the state and city level, and there are other groups like Code for America and and others where you can get engaged in your local community. I would just encourage folks not to be shy about that. Uh, you've got decision makers in these in these positions who want to be able to figure out how to provide services better to the public, but they're super constrained because they don't know even what questions to ask. And so I would very much encourage folks to 
you know, whether that's attending a public meeting or just talking to some of your uh, local elected officials about things that you could do to help the community connect better through technology. It's an invaluable patriotic thing that folks could do right now. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. Another quick note here. Uh, We're going to take off some time for the holidays, just like you. But we'll be back with a new episode on December 30th. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.